tonight's topic is reclaiming science. And uh, I'm very excited for tonight because it's going to be uh, not just one speaker, but two. And it's going to be a very active debate uh, from what I hear. Uh, our presenters tonight are Chris Baglow and Jay Martin. Uh, Jay will be uh, playing the role of devil's advocate this evening, uh, which should be uh, really interesting. Um, Chris Baglow is the director of the Science and Religion Initiative at the University of Notre Dame, uh, developing programs that assist Catholic leaders in bringing the Catholic faith and modern science into dialogue for the sake of the new evangelization. He earned his BA at Franciscan University, uh, his MA at the University of Dallas, and his PhD at Duquesne University. In 2009, Chris published the first high school textbook on this topic, Faith, Science, and Reason, Theology on the Cutting Edge. Growing up in New Orleans, he loves Nolan's cuisine, Nolan's music, Mardi Gras parties, and everything football. Chris is married uh, to Christine, and he has four children. Jay Martin is the academic advisor for the Science and Religion Initiative at the University of Notre Dame, and he assists the director in the creation, development, and execution of academic programming and educational content. He's a doctoral candidate in systematic theology at the University of Notre Dame, where he also earned his Master's of Theological Studies. Uh, Jay will be devil's advocate. So with that, I will hand it over to our speakers. Thank you. So Jay and I talked it over. And because of his formidable intellect, he's going to let me talk for a while so that he doesn't ruin my presentation out, right at the very outset. So. Jay, thank you very much for that, for your, for your uh, leniency on that. <clears throat> well, as you learned, my name is Chris Baglow, and as you also learned, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, the beautiful city where I, where my wife Christine and my children were all born, and which, up until the summer of 2018, was our home. Um, 44 of my 51 years of life were spent right in that city. I would certainly be there right now, and not here today, living in northern Indiana, had it not been for a natural disaster which changed the course of my life and career 15 years ago, the calamity of Hurricane Katrina. Um, and as I would discover after Katrina uh, later, a less dramatic but more profound calamity <clears throat> had been unfolding right at the same time in public perceptions of the relationship between science and faith. I want to give you that background, a little autobiographical background, and talk about how I went from being someone who was, I guess, modestly interested in the relationship between faith and science to someone who has now basically sold my whole career over to it. So I'll get to that. So in 2005, in the hot summer months before Hurricane Katrina raged across the Gulf of Mexico and crashed into my beloved community, a widely televised public debate had been raging across the United States. A court case in Dover, Pennsylvania, that questioned the appropriateness of teaching intelligent design theory alongside evolution in public school curricula was all over the headlines and the news. I was unsettled by the rancor and the abusiveness of the rhetoric and was curious about it, but with a new job, as the department chair of an undergraduate theology program at Our Lady of Holy Cross College, New Orleans, with a happy, busy family life with my wife and two young children, time was a resource that I didn't have. 
But on August 29th of 2005, Hurricane Katrina saw to it that I had plenty of time. In fact, nothing but time. The flooding of New Orleans shut down the fall 2005 semester just as it began. Our own home, which he had just bought five weeks before, flooded. And once we found shelter, I basically had nothing to do but watch CNN and watch the water rise and rise and rise. It was less than a week after the hurricane when I received a phone call from a priest whom I had never met, named Father Bry Shields, the president of McGill Toolin Catholic High School in Mobile, Alabama, about two hours, a community about two hours from New Orleans. And he pr proposed to me an intriguing possibility. He asked me to develop a religion course on faith and science for his school. This was something that I was eminently unqualified to do. <laughs> I had no real background in that. I had spent no time on it. I had not written my dissertation on it. But I was faced with rumors that the college where I was teaching would never open again. And so I said, sure, Father, I'd be happy to do that for you. That began a two-year process, process of research and writing that would profoundly alter the trajectory of my life and my academic career. But it would also give me a view of another tragedy. We could call it Hurricane Dawkins. Many of you know who Richard Dawkins is. This whole period, that two-year period of 2005 and 2007 for me was characterized by the joy of discovering an exciting new way of thinking about the Catholic faith as a theologian. That was very interesting to me. Right? But it was also marked by the sadness of the rising floodwaters of atheist propaganda in the broader culture of ideology masquerading as science. So to put that in perspective, I began writing this curriculum for this high school in October of 2005, and I completed the draft of it in May 2007. It would later become the textbook that I published. At the very same time, that very same two-year time period, the so-called new atheists, you might call them the four, four horsemen of the God eclipse, were riding high on bestseller lists. Sam Harris would produce his book, The End of Faith, in 2005, and then the next year in 06, Letter to a Christian Nation. Also in 2006, Richard Dawkins would produce The God Delusion. Many of you have probably heard of that book. Um, Daniel Dennett would produce Breaking the Spell, Religion as a, national, as a Natural Phenomenon. And in 2007, Christopher Hitchens would produce God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Four of those books are among, all but Dennett's book, are among the top-selling works promoting atheism in human history. And they were all produced, or at least in publishing history, and they were all produced in the two-year window while I was writing my book, which, by the way, did not make the New York Times bestseller list. I think it was some kind of evil plot, but anyway. To put that in perspective some more, my oldest child, my only daughter, Margaret, was in kindergarten and first grade while I was writing the textbook. She is now 20 years old, a freshman in college, or rather a sophomore, sorry, and is a new member of the current young adult Catholic population. And according to the data, 70% of her peers, which include many of you, the, that peer group would be eight, uh, young adult Catholics ages 18 to 30, see science and religion as in inherent 
intractable conflict and say that the discoveries of modern science have not strengthened their faith. In other words, according to the sociologists, like Christian Smith here at Notre Dame and also the sociologists at Georgetown and the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, are telling us that young Catholics have in large part simply embraced the ideas that the new atheists are peddling about a conflict between faith and science. So I want to stop for a second and ask this question before I get back to my story. Why are young Catholics listening to those guys? Dawkins, Dennett, Hitchens, Harris. I want to suggest to you that it's because the new atheists are engaging the discoveries of modern science and we Catholics aren't. Let me give you an example. Right? I have in my hand here the keys to my car. Car is actually in my office too, right? All made of metal. Very important. You ready? I'm going to do a science experiment. Now, why did my keys fall to the ground? Give me a one-word answer. Somebody, anybody. Grab, look at you. All of you at once said exactly the same thing. Gravity. Right? What theory, whose theory of gravity do you have in mind? Newton, very good, Sir Isaac Newton. Now what if I said that the keys did not fall downward because of gravity, but because we find metal in the earth and everything travels to its natural place? Did you find that an unusual explanation? In the Middle Ages, that's the explanation that virtually any educated person would have given you, right? Fire burns up because it's going to its natural place. Metal falls downward, as do rocks, because they're going to their natural place. Newton showed us a better way, did he not, of understanding why things move in certain directions, like when we let them go and let them drop to the floor. And Newton's way of understanding the motion of objects has become so intellectually habituated that it has become integral to the way that we all see the world. We all said gravity. That's the way we describe the world. It's part of the way we engage the world. It's part of the way we see the world. Now, in regard to the Catholic faith, this can help us understand why young people who now see the world through the lenses of cosmic and biological evolution, of neuroscience, etc., are, in many cases, walking away it's because our proclamation of the faith and our associated religious instruction, our catechesis, is on the whole unresponsive to the new ways in which they see the world. The more that scientific ways of knowing and discoveries become part of our worldview, the more their relation to the faith becomes essential to our ability to be compelled by the faith by what God has revealed, right? Kids today, I'm not talking about you, it's like young kids, right? Kids today, I'm not that old, I'm not gonna refer to people in their 20s as kids today yet. But anyway, kids today who, like my own, grew up watching Animal Planet or Discovery Channel or Nova, right? And the last fall, my youngest son, who at the time was six years old, came home from Catholic school very excitedly to tell me something that he learned in class. He said, Dad, Mrs. S. said today that we are mammals. He was blown away by that, right? 
So I talked to him a little bit about what a mammal is. You know, what is a mammal? You know what I mean? He didn't really know much about mammals, but he just thought it was cool that he was one. Um, next day, he came home, though, and asked me this question. He said, Dad, if we're mammals, do we come from other mammals? You don't have to be a graduate student or a science major to see the world in a scientific way. In fact, I would say that it's inescapable. It's in the very intellectual air that we breathe. And the church, founded by the word through whom the universe was made, should be the very first to celebrate that. But back to my story. I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, so let me move on. So Katrina hit in August of 2005. Does anybody know what, remember, or knows enough history to tell us, what significant event, major event, happened in the church just four months before Hurricane Katrina? Yeah, but I, it's interesting that you would say that, but someone of my age would probably, I would, you know what I was going to, uh, uh, the answer I was looking for? The death of John Paul II. We didn't know any pope besides John Paul II. In fact, Pope Paul VI had to die before I even knew there was a pope. And I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through 12th grade. John Paul II, you, you ever hear the term John, JP2 Catholics? My generation is filled with JP2 Catholics. JP2 was our hero, right? It was an amazing thing to live through a moment where young people thronged into St. Peter's Square and just started s shouting out, Santo Subito, sainthood now, sainthood now, sainthood now. The weekend that he died, I wrote a reflection called, I Never Met Him. Every other young person that was close to me, including my wife, had met him, had been in his physical presence. I never had that opportunity. That's how far-ranging his work was. He was everywhere. He was in Denver. He was, I mean, you know, all of these various places. I never got a chance to go to any of those places, unfortunately. The interesting thing is, as I began researching the curriculum, literally just reading every book I could find, and I had to find them mostly on Amazon because all of the libraries in New Orleans were closed, including the library at my college, wondering where and how to begin talking about the relationship between faith and science, what to cover. At that moment, I received a wonderful gift. Father James Sosius, a priest whom I met, the editor-in-chief of Midwest Theological Forum, who would ultimately publish the, my, my uh, curriculum as a textbook, uh, asked me what I was reading to prepare the curriculum that I was proposing that he publish. I rattled off a few titles, really the only ones I knew at the time, and then he asked, have you ever read what John Paul II wrote about science and faith? I was hoping that he would give me a few nuggets, you know, like maybe seven or eight examples of him saying something good. I figured there might be maybe a dozen addresses about faith and science over the 26 years of his papacy. I already knew about one in 1996, you know, maybe there would be more. He sent me a zip drive with 143 addresses about faith and modern science by John Paul II. It was amazing going through them. There was one to nuclear physicists. There were others to biologists. There were more to doctors, others to university professors, university students. My favorite one was the very first one in the zip drive. It was an address that he gave to Mark Albert Einstein's 100th birthday. I dropped everything I was working on, I don't even remember what it was, and I started reading, diving in and reading every 
one of these addresses, just one by one by one in chronological order. And as I made my way through them, speech after speech, I started to feel my concerns and fears fade away and those be replaced by excitement and hope for this project I had taken on out of need more than out of desire. And I want to share with you some quotes from John Paul II that I hope that for you, like me, will help you see the road to reclaiming science, right, as a way in which we can share our Catholic faith. The first quote that I want to share is one of the most powerful and one of the most important. It has to do with the difference between faith and science. He shared this one in September of 1986, actually, when I was starting my freshman year at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He said this, the theological teaching of the Bible and the church, I'm quoting him, does not seek to teach us the how of things, but rather the why of things. Not so much how, but why. Think about that. All of you could tell me right now if I asked how you got to theology on tap tonight, right? You drove, you lived close, you walked, you got a ride from a friend, you took the bus, whatever. But you would answer that, que that next question very differently than the first question. If I asked you, why did you come to Theology on Tap tonight, right? Um, well, think about that distinction in relationship to science and faith. How did the universe come to be? The Big Bang, right? We can say, almost like we can say gravity now. Why does the universe exist? That's a different question. Theology is about why primarily, not about how. As a rabbi, Jonathan Sachs once said, science takes things apart to tell us how they work. Religion brings things together to tell us what they mean. This means that the perspective of faith and theology and the perspective of science are, are very different kinds of perspectives. They're dealing with two very different kinds of truth about the same universe. And so they can never really be in conflict. This made me reflect on what kinds of truth I know as a theologian and teach as a theologian. And one of the things I realized was that none of them are how truths. So as a theologian, I teach about the incarnation. The incarnation tells us that the eternal son of God entered history and became a fully human being, all the while remaining truly God. Does it ever tell us how? No. The real presence of Christ in the Eucharist tells us that the bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. How does bread change that way? Right? We know when. We know who causes it, God and the priest, right? But we can never know how that happens. So the great opening words of John Paul's papacy were, be not afraid. In this quote, he's saying, Catholics, be not afraid of science. Science is never going to be a threat to your faith. Those who would tell you otherwise simply don't understand what your faith is trying to teach you. Okay, second quote. <clears throat> so that first one that I shared was profound and foundational to overcoming my concern that perhaps all the ideas we see of conflict between faith and science were somehow real. Like there was something I was missing. They were actually really in conflict. I just hadn't figured out how yet. <clears throat> but the next one blew my mind. I must have read it three or four times when I first discovered it. 
I went back and reread the entire 1981 speech that the Pope gave at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, just to make sure it meant what I thought it meant. He said, when the Bible speaks to us about the origin of the universe and its makeup, think about Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, it does not provide us with a scientific treatise. The Bible does not teach us how heaven and earth were made, but how one goes to heaven. When does the Bible speak to us about the origin of the universe and its makeup? As I said, right, the seven-day account in Genesis, or you can look at that one in which humans are created last, or in the very next chapter, the second creation account, where you have a male human created first, and then plants, and then animals, and then a female human. Have you ever read those texts and wondered, how can they disagree on the details about this? Like, one of them says exactly a different order than the other one does, right? Um... Were humans created last or first? Give me the deets, peeps. <laughs> By the time I read that quote, I had witnessed many intelligent people try to reconcile the details in talks, in books. Somehow for them, it had to all line up perfectly, no matter how much mental gymnastics were required. And into that confusion, with this quote that I just shared, John Paul II spoke with wisdom and clarity. You don't have to read the Bible that way. You are missing the point when you try to figure out the details as if they were a scientific account. The biblical accounts of creation don't tell us how the universe was made. They tell us in symbolism and in poetic language the deepest meaning of the universe. In other words, it's not the kind of truth that a cosmologist would fit onto a graph. Its truth is the kind of truth we need to write on our hearts. Now, so far, the quotes I've shared focus on the difference between faith and science, showing that faith and science can never be in conflict. The Bible can never be in conflict, but not what one can do for the other. In the next quote that I'm going to share from 1982, which the Pope offered at a symposium with nuclear physicists, he engaged another theme which he would revisit over and over, that the findings of modern science can enrich and strengthen our faith. Let me share that quote. Contemporary science, your own, allows us to discover a world that is far more wonderful than ever known and brings us back even more strongly to the creator, to his wisdom, his power, and to his mystery. Okay. Now that brings up a tricky question. In what way does science bring us back to the creator? Let's get, first of all, right to the heart of what he's not saying. He is not saying that we can use science to prove the existence of God. In fact, science begins with the physical universe and it ends with the physical universe. God is not a part of the universe. Therefore, God's existence cannot be demonstrated by physics, by chemistry, or biology. John Paul II made that clear in another quote when he said, to desire a scientific proof of God would be equivalent to lowering God to the level of the beings of our world. And we would therefore be mistaken methodologically in regard to what God is. Science must recognize its limits and its inability to reach the existence of God. It can neither affirm nor deny his existence. So then the question remains, how can he then claim that science can bring us more strongly to the creator? And one of the things I began to learn as I went on from reading his addresses to reading other things 
is that the deeper that scientists have progressed in understanding the fundamental laws of nature, the more beauty they have encountered. According to the new atheists, the laws of physics explain away all of the beauty that we see. I see a rainbow in the sky and I thank God for it. And Richard Dawkins says, you shouldn't thank God for that. That's just a, that's just a product of the laws of nature and chance, right? But in the last century, one discovery after another has revealed that the very laws of nature themselves exhibit patterns even more elegant, structures even more harmonious, and order far more remarkable than that rainbow. It turns out that in discovering the laws of physics, science did not explain away the beauty and order that was visible in nature. They instead uncovered a beauty that within the depths of nature much greater than that which was visible on its surface. Okay, I'm getting to the end here, and then Jay can take it all apart. I want to move to my next quote. <clears throat> As I said earlier, when I started this unexpected, unplanned journey into the relationship between faith and science in 05, there was a specific faith-science controversy that was playing out in, federal, in a federal courtroom in Pennsylvania the Kitz-Miller versus Dover Area School District case. The school board had decided to require that an alternative to evolutionary theory, which its proponents called intelligent design theory, be presented to all ninth grade biology students. Of course, given that I was writing a curriculum on faith and science for a Catholic school, that raised a serious question in my mind. Like, what should I do in a Catholic school, you know? Should I agree with the school board, this public school board, and add something else? Or should I just think about evolution and its relation to faith? Now, before the case was ever concluded, I encountered this quote from John Paul II from 1986 that put my mind to rest. It should be a simple quote to interpret. There are no conflicts between Catholic doctrine and the scientific theory of evolution. None. It doesn't say a few. He says none. Right? Now, I already knew that John Paul II had said that evolution was more than a hypothesis. But what struck me was how strong the statement was, right? No means no. He didn't say that there are only a few conflicts. He said that there weren't any. Go through the Catholic faith with a fine-toothed comb, and you will come away with a clean comb, without even a speck of a conflict. That's what he seems to be saying. If you go back to the how and why distinction I gave you earlier, that becomes less surprising. Creation, the act of creation, the foundational, eternal, perfect act of love by which God causes all things to be, is why all living creatures exist. Biological evolution, the process studied by science by which the rich, mind-blowing diversity of living things come to thrive on our planet, is how all living creatures come to be. On the one hand, going back to the why, God causes all things to be, and out of love, gives them the ability to be causes of each other. What John Paul II saw is that God not only made the universe, he made it capable of doing what he, desi what he desired it to do, to produce all kinds of incredible life forms, plants, animals, microorganisms, and above all, creatures capable of being in communion with him, of being in his image and likeness us human beings. Can a faithful Catholic be an evolutionary biologist who embraces the science of evolution, who sees it as actually showing God's majesty, power, and love more clearly than an attempt to reject 
what over 150 years of science has discovered? John Paul II says, yes, absolutely. So each of those quotes that I've shared, <clears throat> along with many others, were like epiphanies to me as I began this project. Moments of grace and illumination. They erased my lingering concern that there may really be a conflict somewhere that I just didn't know or hadn't yet seen. The final quote that I'm going to share with you didn't only make me hopeful, it made me hungry. Hungry to understand and share with others, like I'm doing tonight, that the conflict between the Catholic faith and modern science is an illusion. It is a lie of the enemy who wants us to feel like we have to choose between our minds and our hearts. That we have to choose between what reason says and what God says. <clears throat> between what we see with our minds and what we see with our hearts through the gift of faith. And here it is. It's a very famous quote. You may have heard it before. In 1988, he said, science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both can flourish. One of the reasons I became a theologian is because I was deeply committed to John Paul II's call for a new evangelization. I wanted to help train people who could go out and then share with others the faith in religion classes, in wherever, in whatever way they might do it. And when I read the quote, I realized that I had overlooked a major mission field, a field of the laboratory of science and science education. Imagine if the most powerful field of human knowledge today, which are the physical sciences, could become a place where God is encountered and where the gospel is proclaimed. That's what John Paul II was calling for. And that's why I left my beautiful Louisiana life and moved to this frigid, permacloud-covered, lake-effects-no-plague, delightful Midwestern place. Thank you very much. <laughs> Go Irish. Okay. Uh, here he comes. All right, bro. Okay. That was the right preschool. <laughs> okay, so I have been tasked with playing the, uh, the village uh, atheist, I guess, for the evening. Now, so, so Chris and I work together. We think all the same things on this stuff, but I do want to say uh, I am, I'm going to do my best to bring a little bit of pain because I think that... <laughs> These are the questions that I, I would imagine are familiar to some of us. They're certainly familiar to me, and they're certainly at times um, more compelling to me than I might think that they ought to be. Um, so my first question, okay, here we go. So the, the Sachs question, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, science takes things apart to tell us how they work. Religion brings things together to tell us uh, what they mean. Now that's great. I mean, that's great as a schematic. It answers a lot of questions. But I want to explore the distinction between how things work and what things mean that really shores up your entire approach to faith and reason. It's mine, too, but we're suspending, sort of artistically, we're suspending judgment. This is mimetic territory. So why suppose that the two are, are, are in fact, on equal footing? How things work is, is patently objective. Meaning seems to be at least less than objective. Meaning is tricky. More often than not, meaning is not obvious, not uncontested, and not at all clear. Nor is meaning really final. The meaning we assign to one thing can radically change or disappear entirely upon other things or events. 
you have a wonderful marriage that falls apart, some things that were meaningful to you before seem to be suddenly meaningless, right? You, uh, you lose a child, you lose a friend, you uh, lose your job, any number of things, or you happen to have, like Bertrand Russell has this great story, and it, by great I mean absolutely horrifying. Uh, he was having tea with his wife one afternoon, and he took a bike ride, and uh, he says he's happily married, and on the bike ride he realized he no longer loved his wife, and he came back and promptly told her they were getting a divorce, and that was that. So meaning that we assign is very fluid, and it's very um, fleeting, right? So, so moreover, meaning, meanings are context-dependent. They're made possible by our prior commitments, social situations, relationships, and so forth. So why not simply assume <coughs> that the meaning religionists describes is simply a way of describing ourselves, our emotions, our preferences, um, or our beliefs? That is, why not suppose that meaning as a category is simply subjective and in no way reaches the level of, of reaches the nature of explanation that we find in, in scientific explanations of how things work? All right. I defer. Thank you, Jay, for that ridiculous question. No, I'm kidding. That was an excellent question, actually. And it's a question I get asked in class, actually, at Notre Dame, whenever I teach my faith in science elective. Right, so you make this distinction, but it seems one side of it, meaning, is actually a fill-in-the-blank question, right? or a blank check question. Right? Different things mean differently to different people. In a sense, what I probably could have helped to, to avoid that question and prepare for it would be to capitalize the M when I say, religion takes things apart to show us what they mean. And even be more specific, the Catholic faith shows us what they mean. That is, for a person with the gift of faith and the eyes of faith, right? This is not simply a meaning that we impose upon the world. We believe that it is the ultimate meaning that God who creates the world gives to the things that we see. And in a sense, the Christian life is learning how to conform oneself to that. So I go on a bike ride and I discover that I don't love my wife. I tell myself, I told her I would love her and be true to her for the rest of my life. So to hell with what I think and feel right now, I love my wife. And then ride back and bring her out on a date or something like that. Do you get the idea? In other words, allowing ourselves to be motivated by a meaning that transcends us, that is revealed to us by God, is in fact the very nature of the Christian life. I certainly don't indict any person who doesn't share that faith with me of not seeing that meaning. I would certainly hope to share with them why it gives me joy, right? To see the world through the wounds of Christ and through God's perspective. And that's something that we should propose to the world and above all, show them by our own lives, right? Um, but it really is something that I think coming back to would be, the next question would be, so when we say meaning, what they mean, what does God mean? Right. What does God mean about this experience? What does God mean about this reality that we see? And all of reality that science has uncovered to us, what does that mean? And so does that help a little bit? I think it does, yes. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. I have two more questions. Okay. Um, I like the last one the best, I think. Okay, so you present a very uh, sophisticated account of what it means to interpret the Bible, or at least 
point to the fact that the Bible is read intelligently and with sophistication. I don't want to question the fact that the Bible can be read and interpreted in such a way. Yet the Bible is interpreted, shall we say, in uh, shall we say, less than sophisticated ways. Biblical fundamentalists read the Bible like a textbook. Postmodern critics read it as the foundational text or even a how-to guide to misogyny, racism, genocide, uh, all manner of things, sexual repression, and so on. So let's agree that the Bible can be sophis read sophisticatedly. But why suppose that this ancient text? But why not suppose that this ancient text can simply be read, and justifiably read in as many ways as there are readers? Yeah, very good. It's a fair question. It is a fair question. And it's very consistent with your first, first question, right? Yeah. <laughs> which, which is, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a variation on the same theme, which is, it's true that people can read those things that way. Um, and in fact, that's something else I, I find that Notre Dame, right? The text, can, the text of the Bible can be read as a particular kind of account, like moving to the Genesis account, or seemingly justifying horrible things. Once again, we have to go to ask ourselves, what is our principle of interpretation, right? Um, and that principle of interpretation would be, I think, reason with a small r, meaning reason with a capital R. Reason, that our ability to understand the historical context to do the best with knowing what the author's situation was and therefore how his audience might have understood what he was saying, right? And how that comes to its fulfillment with a capital R in the divine reason that became flesh in Jesus Christ, right? In other words, how does this text move towards Christ as its fulfillment? And once again, that's not something that anyone has to, in other words, it's not like, you know, there's a, there's a picture on the, or there's a statement on the front of the Bible, don't open this text until you believe that this is the hermeneutic by which you read it, right? But we do have a magisterium. Yeah, we do have a magisterium, right. How is that, I mean, how is that rational, again, that was right. How is that rational when you have certain sort of uh, inscriptions, the biblical story means this, yeah. or it means this range of things, if we want to grant a little bit of freedom, you know, we can say something sexy like, sure. this, this is such a range of meanings here, but there's also a range of meanings that are not allowed. Right, right. How does that maintain rationality? How do you maintain rationality? And, you know, enlightenment critic would say, look, how can you have, you can't have rationality if reason as a form is imposed by an authority external to you. Got you. Did anybody get that in the back? Did you guys hear him? You did not? Uh, so he asked the question, he says, you have a magisterium. In other words, he's pointing out to me that I read the Bible, as, and he's correct, right? Um, with the guidance of the church's tradition, above all the magisterium of the church, the, the councils of the church, and that kind of thing. And the question is, how can that be rational if in fact it's simply just a response to authority? Right? And my answer to that question would be, stop asking me difficult questions, Jay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> my answer to that question would be that the magisterium does not simply impose a meaning on me. In many ways, it kind of clears the field of a certain number of meanings that would obscure the hermeneutic that I described, which is to read the Bible with Christ as the interpretative key. So when I look at, for instance, when I look at the career of Samuel, right, the prophet Samuel, I can look at that incredible moment, which we all have heard in the Mass many, many times, and I can see that moment where he hears a voice calling to him, and he 
keeps going to, who was the priest? I can't even remember his name. Anyway, keeps going. he's living in the temple and he keeps going to the priest and the priest tells him, go back to sleep a couple times. And then the third time he does it, he goes, it's the Lord. Go say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, right? Or the Samuel that tells Saul, go into the Amalekite village and kill them all. Man, woman, child, livestock, etc. When is Samuel at his best? In this one or in that one? Who is to say? And I would say that we see Samuel's best only when we compare Samuel to Christ. Only when we see Christ as fulfilling it. That's an act of faith in a person, right? Not just kind of an obedience to the magisterium. Sweet. Okay, thanks. Right, so my last question. So this is, you know, there's a theme in my questions because these are, this is my, my bag, I guess. So you present this integrated view of faith and reason, one in which your intellectual life and faith can, can coexist happily so long as certain hermeneutical principles, and I'm glad you said hermeneutics in the last uh, yeah. reply, are in place. Hermeneutical principles, however, are prior to what is interpreted. Mm-hmm. So we bring our interpretive framework to the world, and only then do we get down to the business of interpreting. So it seems like we come to a problem uh, with the reason side of the equation. How are our hermeneutical principles justified on rational grounds? If a medical doctor came to a patient uh, with a diagnosis already in kind of in blood before mm-hmm. he ever examined or she ever examined the patient, then we'd be looking for a new doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay, more reasonably, let's say that a Freudian literary critic, a bad one, I'm, I'm big up on Freud, uh, <laughs> but uh, let's say a very lousy Freudian literary critic, comes to any and every literary text with the confirmed conviction that no matter what, be it Wind in the Willows or James Joyce uh, Ulysses, is about sex or the author's mom or both. (laughs) So how can the faithful Catholic ever posit the rationality of her or his interpretive decisions? It seems like a choice has to be made at some point that will set the agenda for one's intellectual life after all. Will I be a person of faith or a person of reason? Okay. So what you're proposing is that there's a binary between faith and reason. But I would suggest to you that in every act of reason, there is a more foundational act of faith. I don't think anybody can escape the kind of presumption, right, uh, or, the assume, or the assumption that makes possible coming to any intelligible conclusion about anything. Think of the scientist. Scientists base their investigation of the world on a number of assumptions. One of them, the world is orderly, that they can understand it. Okay, well, just because it's, just, you've been able to discover certain levels of order to it, does that mean you're always going to? Why would you start this very costly and difficult process, right? Why would you bank your whole career on it, in many cases, right? That you'll be able to find something intelligible about the universe that isn't already there. Second, They believe that the world has to be explored in order to be discovered. Why don't they just sit back in their armchair and figure it out logically like somebody like Aristotle might have done, right? Right? Why do they think you have to go about it this way? Those kind of convictions about the world are not the products of scientific investigation. They are not the products so much of reason, but rather the foundations by which reason can happen. What I'm suggesting is that it's possible for a faith informed by reason to find itself founded in this person in an encounter with the person, Christ, 
that becomes a way in which they understand the world. In fact, I would ask how many of us ever came about our reason all alone. We always did in relationship, and what I'm suggesting is that the relationship with Christ, right, is a relationship that, above all other relationships, can help us understand the deepest meaning of the things that we see, even in, even in the microscope and the telescope. Yes. Thank you. Right, you're welcome. That's the first time Jay and I have ever debated, and it was fun, too. You don't have to do that more often. Thank you. So one of the things that came up for us was this scriptural question and this sort of like God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. Um, how would you respond to someone who said, well, hey, kind of going along with what Jay asked, like um, someone who says, well, maybe I can't prove the, um, the re my assumptions for science, but at least it's consistent and I can trust that it's been consistent, whereas for you it seems like there's this God of the Old Testament, and you use the example of Samuel, who commands certain things that are really not good, um, and then this sort of God of the New Testament that, you know, calls you to sacrifice and death um, that seems inconsistent, whereas at least science is, is consistent for me. So I, I think um, I would focus on the science, the notion that science is, is consistent, which is patently absurd, actually. <laughs> Um, I mean, if you look at the history of, of you know, not even attending to something like, um, like Thomas Kuhn's Structures of Scientific Revolutions, but if you just look at the, pat, the, the blank history, we're all Newtonians until we're not, right? <laughs> and then all of a sudden we have, you know, we have relativity, we have quantum mechanics to deal with. Those two don't disagree with each other in, in the fine points. We still have no idea, I think Chris brought up earlier today, uh, like dark matter, you know, like we, no one knows what that is. You have an idea of what it does, you know. And, and so if you look at, I mean, the history of scientific development, it's, it's incredible because it is incre incremental, but it's also recursive, right? And the idea that science is consistent, it, it can be consistent in certain ways. It can be consistent in terms of, of you know, predicting certain outcomes. But if you look at you know, just the, the change that we've had in the space from when I was taking science classes as a uh, you know, high school and elementary school student, middle school student, and the, uh, uh, you know, the model of the atom, the, the model of the atom we have now is completely different. You, know, you look at the implications of, of quantum mechanics for the, the practice of science, especially when we're just looking at formulating what science can actually tell us, and all of a sudden we're told like, yeah, okay gang, so we thought that we, you know, things were either yes or no. Now the best we got is that things admit in uh, probabilities and upon observation, uh, the wave function collapses into one of those two probabilities or whatever probabilities there are. So I think I would, the first thing I would do is push back and say, no, yeah, sure, the, the, the notion that, that, um, that science is, is uniformly consistent is, is it's just patently untrue. That being said, we are talking about two different kinds of data sets, right? You can say, well, look, with science, we get better at, we have better technology, we have better tools, uh, we have cleaner theories, <clears throat> and in religion, we might not. And again, I would push back on that. Well, in fact, we, you know, there is an idea that we have progress, you know, that, that, that revelation is progressive, the magisterium has been developing and refining the, the, the essentials of our faith for 2,000 years, and we know better what it means to be 
you know, followers of Jesus Christ. We may not be as good at it as the apostles, and they were pretty lousy to begin with, most of them, uh, or the church fathers. I mean, there's pockets of, of uh, or not pockets, but broad swaths of spiritual genius in our tradition. But in fact, we know a lot more about the biblical text than earlier Christians and scholars did. We know more about well, the, the lived character of the church because we've had, we have 2,000 years of its history. Whereas the, the, the you know, ecclesial or ecclesiastical speculations of a church father are impressive and beautiful, but they don't have, they don't have the, the years on it, right? So I think I would just say like, well, I think that consistency is frankly a modernist idol because no one's got it. And we, should, we actually have the resources to celebrate that. And I don't think science does. Science is very good at displacing its own embarrassment, and maybe it shouldn't be. Oh, and I would just add that the, um, so the consistency of Old Testament and New Testament, I would suggest that a closer look, um, when you atomize certain passages, kind of like I did, you know what I mean, so with the Samuel thing, you might come to the conclusion that the Old Testament is about you know, a harsh God who is unmerciful and... But actually what I think is happening is, in the Old Testament, is the truth, the one truth of God, is breaking through slowly, right, layers of human ignorance and sin, right? Um, I used to tell my students in fundamental theology, I'll say, if I could summarize it for you, I would put it this way. God has always revealed himself openly and fully to the world. And about 2,000 years ago, one woman got it and the word became flesh in her womb. You know what I mean? But Mary didn't come out of the blue. What she came out of was a long history in which people were slowly, where God's people were slowly beginning to see the whole truth. And what I find consoling, paradoxically, about those things in the Old Testament we find unsettling is that I can look at my own life and see a similar pattern where I'm glad I don't think the way I might have thought 20 years ago, right? I thank God for that change. But I also thank God that he was gracious and merciful enough to allow that change to be my own and not just something he imposed on me. I was wondering if you could, um, you mentioned there's no conflict between science and religion, and I think that actually goes beyond that in terms of if you could comment on the idea that in, in Judeo-Christian traditions that we have a, a God that transcends the created world seems to open up the space for science. So if we're not worshiping a tree, because God is beyond that, we can now study the tree. Um, we can come up with a scientific method. We don't have to worry about offending some random deity um, by our kind of investigation of the world. And I was just wondering if you could kind of comment on that. That's a fantastic point. We work very closely with um, a PhD chemist and a theologian named Stacy Trasankos, who has t talks a lot about this in her work. Um, in fact, I just saw her book in the podium, by the way, Particles of Faith. Um, the idea that, you know, you might want to ask the question, <clears throat> so there were many great breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs in many different cultures of the ancient world. The Chinese had it, the Babylonians had it, um, the Greeks, you know, you can go through many, many different examples. But why do we talk about this particular period called the scientific revolution occurring in a Judeo-Christian culture, right? 
and from there becoming something that really transforms the whole world, right? Now the entire, there are people across the entire globe doing science. And I think that there's a good, I don't think that you need, you would have to say that Christianity in a sense caused science, right? But it certainly was a fertile soil for that approach because it was one that first of all called into question the idea of the divinity of the world, right? The world is not divine, right? And also, because of its belief in divine freedom, this idea that we can't just simply, as I said, kind of alluded to in my, something before, we can't just sit back in our armchair and say, well, logically, therefore, this is the way the world has to be, and then just set it aside. We have to actually go in, because God is free, we actually have to go investigate the world and understand what he created. And that's what science does, right? So um, does that help? Is that a little bit, uh, I don't know if I was getting exactly at the point, but okay. And Jay, I'm sure has, a, has more to add. I, I have a, just a brief theological supplement. I think one thing that's interesting that about the notions of imminence and transcendence and what we have in Christianity are not ph philosophical notions. We have theological notions. And so uh, unlike Aristotle, so Aristotle's God is completely transcendent. And so what does Aristotle's God do, which is what a perfect being does? contemplate itself, contemplate God's self. That's it. Because if you're transcendent, you, you know, that's great, that's great news. You don't have, you're not responsible, you don't have any, you couldn't possibly have any relation to anything imminent. Now, uh, so the, the, I think for me the most helpful person that I've read on, on this is Hansers on Balthazar. It helps that my wife is a Balthazar scholar. But he says, you know, that what separates the philosophical and theological notions of, of transcendence and, and imminence in particular uh, a theology of, of transcendence doesn't end with transcendence, it actually ends with imminence. Transcendence is always imminentizing itself from this infinite fount. So God is always pouring God's self into the world as an act of grace. We're not, you know, Neoplatonists who think that there's this weird pouring out or whatever, but God is always reaching out to us. God is always revealing God's self to us. And in the same way, when we approach the imminent world with that understanding, the imminent world we find is also transcending itself. So the, so the theological notion basically puts us in this interesting kind of matrix or this sort of flow between imminence and transcendence. God reaches out to the world, the world points us to God, and uh, Balthazar is solid on that. I don't know if anyone's, any Balthazar fans? Yes, okay. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Um, there's a quote Radzinger is fond of. He builds this whole book, Introduction to Christianity, around it. It comes from an anonymous Flemish Jesuit who wrote it as a kind of a, um, a eulogy for St. Ignatius of Loyola. Not to be encompassed by the greatest, but to allow oneself to be encompassed by the smallest. That is divine. And so when a scientist studies something small, he can encounter God, right? And when a scientist is brought to the edge of his knowledge and the edge of where our minds can even begin to conceive. I mean, science has come to conclusions that are natural paradoxes that we can't even think about. We can't think about light as a wave and a particle at one and the same time. But science tells us that it is, right? When we see those things, we encounter God both in this imminentizing, incarnational, being present in the smallest way, but at the same time also beyond it, through awe and wonder into the things that are far beyond our ability to conceive of them. Thank you both uh, for your comments so far. Um, I guess my question is not in so much in defense of faith against uh, 
science against faith, but in uh, defense of, uh, uh, let me rephrase that. Um, so if evolution is, this is this theory is, you know, sustainable and tenable in, in um, science, where is the fall? Where, where's the fall come in? Um, was it this large group of 150,000, some odd, 150 million, some odd, uh, humans, homo sapiens, 200,000 years ago, 300,000 years ago, whatever it is, and God chose two to impart reason in, and and the female sinned? Um, or is the entire story of the fall a metaphor? In which case, what theology of the fall do we have, really, as uh, Christian people? I think the church leads us to somewhere in between those two things. It would say that the story as we've traditionally received it has metaphorical elements to it, but also points to some real historical truth about humanity. Um, and I think the best way to think about sin as a way of original sin and the fall is something that is completely amenable to how science may open up the idea that there were more than just two human beings at the beginning of the human race, for instance, right? Which is one of the issues, one of the things at hand. <clears throat> and I kind of got to it when I was talking about reason. Jay and I were actually talking about this, but you all were talking about your thing, your questions. Jay and I were talking about this whole idea that somehow reason isn't reason unless I come to it all by myself, right? Everything in human life is relational. Somewhere along the way, relationality got damaged, right? Our relationship with God, our ability to receive ourselves from God, and also our relationship with one another, right? Um, we curved in on ourselves, as Augustine would say, right? Rather than being like this, we went like this. However that may have happened, the fact that it happened in human life, and because God created us to be a family, mean it affected all of us, right? We don't stand on our own. And consequently, we need God to come into the world to heal that relational damage. We need to be, in a sense, reborn into a new family, which is exactly what baptism is, right? Um, it's not just, it's this cleansing from sin, but it's also coming, where do you come out of water? You come out of water when you're being, when you're being born, right? The water breaks and here comes the baby, right? Same thing with us. We come out of the baptismal font into a new way of existing and acting. We come into, literally, we come to exist inside Christ whose sinlessness begins to then overcome our sinful mess. And how did it exactly happen? I don't think we need to know. I think we can let science tell us some of those details and work those things out. And I think that regardless of where it comes to, we're always going to come back to that fact. Um, so I don't think that the, the dogma of original sin is in any danger of being lost. Because 15 minutes after I leave here, I'll demonstrate it. <laughs> and, and I think just a minor thing. Not that long. <laughs> you pushed me. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a, an important point that I think is woefully understressed for, for, good, for fair reasons is the fact that in the tradition of, of interpretation, there's a very wide range of interpretation of, of an account of the fall. Um, I mean, I think the, one of the most provocative and interesting and unchallenged, or uncondemned rather, is Maximus the Confessor. When did human beings, when did human beings fall? The second they were created, the second they, be, they took on their meat suits, right? 
so I mean, there's an understanding. There's there's an understanding of the church uh, in the church that has a we have a range of talking about this. It's already somewhat metaphorical, but all we I mean, what it points to, they all point to the same reality. But we don't have an interpretive uh, kind of regime that's imposed on us. We have to take original sin seriously. Uh, and the church has, in terms of how we understand that, ha actually gives a pretty wide berth to it. Um, but the idea that I think this is, and it largely kind of in a response to Protestant Reformation, we begin to kind of rigidify our, our biblical interpretation. And like, well, if you don't have the story where two dudes mess up and they get kicked out of a garden by, you know, for fooling around with a snake and an apple, then how do you make account for it? And I think that when you look at the resources that tradition actually affords us to interpret this well, and with, a, I guess, a degree of, uh, uh, I don't know, suppleness, that's already there. And you, you have, the church gives the luxury of actually kind of looking and seeing what we like and taking it for a spin, you know? It's good to see you, by the way. How you been? Not bad. Good. <laughs> good. Forgive me, I went to a really liberal college. Um, but... <laughs> So one of the arguments that I would always um, get is that um, an argument against organized Christianity is the harm that um, it's done historically or alleged to have done historically, um, that God and tradition have been a consistent barrier to the discovery of truth in science, um, and that the ordering principles of Christianity um, have been you know, used in service of power to prolong suffering rather than alleviate it. Um, so what do you say to someone who believes that like all organized power and religion is some form of oppression? Um, sure. Could you, you gave, so you gave three things, one, but they were question. rather distinct. I want to speak <laughs> oh. to the first one. Could sure. you repeat it? Um, yeah. Um, so the argument uh, against organized Christianity is the harm that it's done in history. It has done a great deal of harm in history. Um, that is, that is anything good is that much worse when it falls, right? I mean, have you ever met a really evil frog? No. But have you ever met a really vicious dog? I mean, if you're in Louisiana where there are lots of dogs, then maybe so. I don't know about around here, but yeah, right? Dogs that have been bred to kill. And human beings can be the most sinister and diabolical of all. We would recognize that precisely in that scale, right, that which is capable of the greatest kind of good is also capable of the worst evil. I would say the same thing about organized religion. Last year, we had an event where we had an evolutionary psychologist come, and he speaks actually in my class every time I teach my faith science elective at Notre Dame. He's an evolutionary psychologist. He has a book called Supernatural Selection, How Religion Evolved. And he gives a talk for us called How Costly Rituals Made Us Human. And one of the points that, one of the things that I do after, the, after he talks about it is I begin to ask questions about organized religion. And it's amazing how my students' ideas about it change from bad to better, at least, from one to the other. Because the fact is, is that we need, we need the opportunity to bind ourselves together in beliefs. That's what we do as human beings. We've done it from the beginning. Right? Um, because it has been abused, does not necessarily, abuse does not disqualify proper and good use. And I would say that it's essential. And, and 
I think you shouldn't, I think as young people who are Catholics, you shouldn't be afraid of telling people that. Because the fact is, is that we are alienated as hell in our society. People are sad and lonely, right? And they don't recognize the possibility that there can be any real communion, any lasting community, integral community. Um, so I would go to that first. Secondly, about the science question. Um, that is propaganda from the late 19th century. I gave a talk about that on actually Tuesday night of last week, um, precisely about this very issue a week ago tonight, um, about the conflict thesis and where it comes from. And um, I'd be happy to share that with any of you all. I write about it in the second edition of my textbook if you're interested in buying a textbook. Um, but anyway, I'm sure you, you were hoping that opportunity would arise sooner or later. Um, you get, um, but um, there are real reasons why Galileo happened. There was a real abuse of power in that situation, but that was the exception, not the rule. So, I mean, I can only assert that now and not argue it, but I'm going to give the uh, microphone to Jay because I've gone on too long. Thank you. You're welcome. So, uh, your, your third point, I think the one about, uh, could you re just restate that just sure. for the record? Um, the record what show. do you say uh, to someone who believes that, um, that Power and organized power is a, a singular source of yes. oppression, regardless of good intention. Fantastic. Okay, great. So you went to a liberal college. Uh, that's. Um, <laughs> I loved it. I, I, I would too. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think, and this is. Um, I mean, so my field of research is is kind of all the theory stuff, and one of the, one of the things I think is really interesting is um, the way in which. And, 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 and frankly, the best people to read on this are, are Marxist ideology critics, of saying, so at what point does a critique of power become a critique, of, uh, become actually a, a, a sort of regime of power? So, so basically, um, you can see this in, in sort of, um, and this pains me to say it, but forms of, of sort of Soviet Marxism, sort of Marxist-Leninism. The idea is that we reject all ideology. Religion is an ideology, capital, capitalism is an ideology, and so forth. But at some point, it becomes a regime of power itself that is subject to its own critiques. Um, if, you're, if you're a reader of Foucault, I think the, uh, Foucault is amazing. Now, he's not, he's not going to be for everybody, and he's not going to be, he, you know, as a Christian, you can't sign off on all the things that he says. But the most, I think one of the most powerful criticisms of his critique of power is from Jean Baudrillard, who says, well, look, the problem with your theory is that it's too good. It explains what it's supposed to explain. And therefore, it has to, by your own definition, be subject to its own critique. So I think there needs to be, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a realism about power. And in fact, once we get um, toward an idealism of power, we lose the ability to actually make the critique. So when we talk about, well, look, the church is a source of authority and power, and it's done lousy things, therefore, we, we move from the particular to the universal, or to the larger collective. The problem with that is that you have villains in the story who actually get off free, get off scot-free when we make that transition. So like Nicholas Kristof, the New York Times reporter, who I, I, I don't like typically, but he was talking about, the, this was a few years ago when, when the sex abuse crisis in the church was going strong, and he wrote this very self-serving piece. He's like, look, gang, you know, I know it's easy to beat up on the Catholic Church, but I know a lot of really good grassroots priests out there. The real problem is the bishops who are shuffling the priest around and all this sort of stuff. Now, so he's saying, like, the problem is structural. 
And I say, that's a huge problem, but it's particular bishops who did things like that. And it's also particular priests who did the abusing, and we need to go after those particular people who violated the rules and, and sort of ethics of, of power. Power's a real thing. People have it, and it's usually the people who have it uh, who deny, who have it and, and use it the most wantonly are the ones who deny that they have it or that it exists or that it should be used at all. So I think, I just want to push back on the way that the question is often framed in sort of a postmodern context, which is to say there's a thing called power and it does bad things, therefore no one should have it. While the people who are still going to do it, they don't care what, what postmodern critics are going to say, they still get to use power. And instead I think we should have a sort of inglorious bastards approach. Let's go, after, let's go after them all, every single one of them, in Christian charity. <laughs> I saw that movie, but I don't remember the in Christian charity, but let's hear it for him.